Okay, we're ready to start here with a question from Zone 1. If you'll take your seats, please. We've got a... Mr. Buffett, I'm Brian Murphy from Clearwater, Florida. I'd like to ask you a question concerning your present thinking behind your acquisitions of banks such as PNC and SunTrust, um, particularly in light of the fact that banks were selling so cheaply in 1990 and now many have tripled in price. And it would appear from recent publications in the financial uh, literature that you've uh, become much more interested in banks at these higher prices relative to the 1990 valuations. Could you comment on your thinking there? Yeah, we, we really have no different, uh, there's no difference in the criteria we apply to banks than do to other businesses. And, and uh, uh, a couple of publications have maybe made a little more of that than than is warranted because I, I doubt if there's more than a couple percentage points difference. In, in, and, and we don't think of it that way, incidentally. And, and we, we do not have a lot of sector, we don't have any sector allocation uh, theories whatsoever. Uh, uh, so we, we simply apply the same uh, criteria when, when looking at banks that we would at, at any other business. That, uh, uh, there, incidentally, there's sometimes, you should know that there's, I would say that uh, maybe half or maybe even a little more of the uh, reports about our activities are in the press are erroneous. Now, now some are accurate too. And then of course some are way out of date. I mean, uh, uh, we get confidential treatment on our on the filings we make with the SEC as to our holdings. So they're published well over a year after uh, we filed them and therefore there have been a couple of stories uh, in the last month or two as to something we bought. And of course, if you read the story carefully, it's, we bought it a year and a half ago maybe, and we may have sold it, we may have bought more, all kinds of things. So that uh, uh, I'd be careful about press reports uh, generally. We've, we've, we actually, we bought a bank for Berkshire in 1969, the Illinois National Bank and Trust of Rockford. We, we've had an interest in the banking business. Or we feel it's something that we can, that falls within our circle of competence to evaluate. That doesn't mean we'll be right every time, but, it, but we, we don't think it's beyond us to understand the banking business. And uh, so it's, a, it's, it's, we look at businesses in that area. Charlie? Uh, nothing to add. Okay. And do we have zone two? Uh, Larry Myers from Omaha. Warren, two quick questions. Uh, the first one, very brief. Do you have any timetable regarding when you will write your own book about your career in philosophy? Yes, my timetable has always been six months from now. <laughs> now the answer on that is I, I've, I've thought about doing it a few times, and I, and I think about it. It always seems to me there's way more interesting, there are more interesting things yet to happen than have happened so far, and I don't want to. Uh, I know I won't write a second one, so I keep postponing it. That's my that's my rationale on it anyway. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Second question concerns dividends. Last Friday night, by coincidence, on Louis Rukeyser's uh, weekly television show, <coughs> the special guest was Philip Curray, <clears throat> and Mr. Curray made the statement that his favorite American stock is Berkshire Hathaway. And one of the major reasons he stated was that Berkshire has never paid a dividend, as we all know, and consequently you had superior utilization of the extra cash. <coughs> now, if you extend that reasoning, could it also be a beneficial policy if Coca-Cola and Gillette 
stop paying dividends, and utilize the cash in other ways? Well, it depends what they could use that, how they would use, utilize the cash and what they could use it for. Those are more focused enterprises than Berkshire, at least in terms of products. And they, um, I think, I commend managements that have a wonderful business for utilizing cash in those wonderful businesses or in businesses that they understand and will also have wonderful economics and for getting the rest of the money back to the shareholders. So Coca-Cola in my book is doing exactly the right thing with its cash when it both, when A, <clears throat> it uses all the cash that it can effectively in the business to expand in new markets and all of that sort of thing. But then beyond that, it pays a dividend which re distributes cash to shareholders and then it repurchases shares in a big way which returns cash on a selective basis to shareholders, but in a way that benefits all of them. So we, you will benefit from us not paying dividends just as long as we can use the every dollar we retain to produce more than a dollar of value and of market value over time. Whether we can continue doing that, you know, how long we can continue doing that, I can't promise you, but that is the, that's the yardstick by which the decision is made. <clears throat> and that is the yardstick I think by which Coca-Cola is making the decision too, and I think that they deserve great credit for exercising the discipline to quit when they uh, using cash when they've run out of the opportunities to use it well, and then to use it then to further deploy it advantageously by repurchasing shares. Um, I think uh, one of the things I admire about my friend Bill Gates, he's got four and a half billion of cash and and Microsoft, and uh, there are very few managements can stand having four and a half billion of cash and not doing something uh, unintelligent with it. it uh, uh, so far, it's made sense for us to retain uh, everything we earn, and uh, I think it'll make sense for a while longer, but it may not make sense indefinitely. Charlie? I hope it lasts a long time. <laughs> Zone three. Uh, my name is Dan O'Neill from Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I would ask, like to ask you a more specific question about Solomon Brothers, which is, why do we pay our employees there so much? Um, why what? Why do we pay our employees there so much money? Um, the conventional theory seems to be that there's just a different pay scale on Wall Street than the rest of the world, and it's based on the idea that traders are smarter than uh, that some traders are smarter than others and in some supernatural way are able to receive signals that the future is sending back to the present. And how do we know that that isn't just an urban legend like alligators in the New York City sewers? Um, another theory would be <clears throat> that the large amount of shareholders' capital allows the traders to capture inefficiencies that are in the market in the same way that the house does in Las Vegas. I mean, if we owned a casino, uh, it wouldn't make any difference if we hired Albert Einstein or Forrest Gump to run the blackjack table, um, and we would pay them the same. And I wonder which theory you think is closer to the truth. <laughs> well, you put it well. Uh, <laughs> in the end, of course, you end up paying them um, at a, what you think at least is a market rate, and to some extent the market tests you out by whether people leave because they can get a higher rate, but the limiting factor on that should be that you pay them a market rate as long as you were getting a market rate on capital. But it's harder to measure the market rate on capital 
in a short period than it is to me measure the market rate on compensation. So the a good many of the people that have left, but, but far from all, have left because they felt that they would obtain, presumably because they would obtain greater compensation elsewhere. The market was, was working in that way, just as it works in entertainment that way, and it works in, in the athletic field that way. And uh, uh, whether it, when it works that way, it leaves a return for capital that's adequate is, uh, is an open question. I mean, I haven't looked at the figures on all the baseball teams, but I've seen some of them. And certainly in some of the smaller markets, it really, I mean, the, the books were not phony. I mean, it, it, it is very hard to pay market rates for ball players uh, in Kansas City and, uh, and still make money running a ball team. Uh, well, you've got a smaller television market and all of that of the big cities. So in the end, you're going to have to pay market rates to retain people, but part of that will also depend upon the period over which they measure their what they're going to be paid. I mean, if, if you want to look at Goldman Sachs last year, they were paid nothing. Does that mean that everybody will leave because they can get paid something someplace else? No, because 80% of the partners or 90% of the partners have a longer time horizon than that, and they, they have an anticipated earnings figure in mind when comparing it with what they're being offered elsewhere. Um, if you have a situation where market rates you know, exceed the earning capacity of the business, then at some point capital will flow away from the business. In the airline industry, which I use as an example, the market rate, the, the most, well, the, the, the in, in, in terms of the bigger airlines, people are not being paid market rates, they're being paid contractual rates. Well, you, look, you can't blame anybody for that. Uh, if, if you have a contract that entitles you to, to X and the current market is a half of X, you're going to hang on to that contract uh, 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 very aggressively. And, and, and like I say, you don't blame anybody for that. It's just if you end up in that condition, though, you've got a real problem. And if you have the same problem that, if, that, that you have if the market is higher than, or similar problem, the one you have if the market is higher than one that you can sustain in your own business. Uh, my guess is that there, that uh, uh, in effect, Solomon has put in a more Goldman Sachs-like system because essentially it, it, it created, to a degree, a partnership within it. That to, to have that work, A, over time the partners have to earn good money, and it won't work, but B, you have to have people that have a partnership mentality in it. And, and if you change from one culture to another, you are not going to get 100% acceptance of any, of any new system. Charlie? Yeah, it was kind of a bad break to put in a new compensation system and then have a very bad year. In the very nature of things, people are going to blame the compensation system subconsciously. Uh, and, uh, and then too, I think that, that Wall Street generally has more envy jealousy effects than, than uh, are typically present elsewhere. I have a friend whose grandmother used to say, that she couldn't understand why people got into envy jealousy because it was the only one of the sins that you could never possibly have any fun at. And, 
But uh, generally speaking, on Wall Street, I think a lot of people have had the wrong kind of grandmothers. Yeah, I've commented from time to time that, uh, what's the day, Robin Leach has it all wrong on lifestyles of the rich and famous because he's presenting all these wonderful things that will happen to you if you get rich. But, but they really aren't that all that wonderful, these fancy houses and boats and all that, that the real advantage of being rich, as I explain to people, is that it enables you to hate so effectively that if you're terribly rich, you know, and but you, your, your brother or you know, whatever, whomever, cousin or somebody is getting a little more attention in the world or something of the sort, you can hate in a very major way. You can hire accountants and lawyers to cause them all kinds of trouble. If you're poor, you just snub them at Thanksgiving and don't show up or something of the sort. But, the, but I've noticed that these rich people, particularly when they inherit great amounts of money, sooner or later they start. Frequently, they 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 they, uh, they get very antagonistic toward siblings or cousins or whatever it may be, and they and they really can they can they can hate in a way that uh, or get envious in a way that the rest you know the rest of us really can't really aspire to. So. That's the that's a benefit that hasn't appeared on Robin Leach lately, but I, but you see that you see a little of that in the athletic field and the entertainment field and perhaps even Wall Street that they, that making a million dollars a year looks great until this guy that sits next to you that can't possibly be as smart as you is making a million too, and then the whole world it turns into a very unfair place. <laughs> Zone four. Good afternoon. Uh, my question is simply about the cash and cash equivalents that are shown on the balance sheet this year versus last year. Um, in my thinking, cash equivalents is always something good to have around in case of a big market drop, being able to make uh, opportunistic buys, as I know uh, you've referred to Mr. Mar Mr. Market getting uh, manic depressive at times. Uh, is there something that is uh, less than obvious here that I'm not seeing, or is uh, the position uh, not there now? Should that happen in the marketplace? And cash at Berkshire is a residual. I mean, we, we, uh, we would like to have no cash at all times. We also would don't want to own a, owe a lot of money at any time. But but we, if if we have cash around, it's simply because we haven't found anything we like to do, and and uh, um, we hope always hope to deploy it as soon as possible. We never are thinking about whether the market's going to go down or or something of the sort, or whether we might buy something even cheaper. If we like something, we'll buy it and and. Uh, and uh, when you see cash on our balance sheet of any size, that's that's a uh, an acknowledgement by Charlie and me that we have uh, we have not found anything uh, in size anyway attractive at that point. That, uh, it's never a policy of ours to hold a lot of cash. Zone five. David Winters, uh, Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. Um, uh, David Winters, Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. Um, Years ago, you said you loved the newspaper business, and then over time, I guess it said it declined a bit in how much you loved it. And I'm kind of wondering how you feel about it now, and if you can prognosticate a little bit for us at all. Well, I, I, I used to love it in two respects. I love the economics, and I love the activity, both. And the activity, the love of the activity is not diminished. The, the economics are still ex exceptionally good compared to virtually any business. In the world, they aren't quite as good as they were uh, 15 years ago. So they, they have—I wrote about that a couple of years ago. Whereas what was seemed almost the most bulletproof of franchises 
is still a, an exceptionally good business, but it isn't quite as bulletproof as, as uh, might have been the case uh, 10 or 20 years ago. I still think it's about as interesting a business as there is in the world, I mean, but, but if you're talking pure economics, the, uh, I can't think of many other businesses that if I just owned one asset over my life that I would rather own than a, uh, a newspaper in, in, a, in a single newspaper town. But uh, I, wouldn't have quite, I wouldn't have quite the feeling of, uh, of, uh, um, of absolute certainty that I, had, that I would have had 10 or 15 years ago. Charlie? Yeah, I, I think it's obvious. I, the newspaper proprietors are getting a touch of paranoia for the first time. I mean, they worry about the electronic revolution. They worry about the fact the young people, you know, don't read. Uh, it's not as much fun going to newspaper conventions as it used to be. They're still making exceptional money. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing. Ah, but they, I've heard you say a dozen times, people don't seem to care what floor they're at, just whether the elevator's going up oh, or I'm down. Fine. That is true. <laughs> people feel better when they're on the second floor of an elevator that's just come from one than they do when they're on the 99th floor coming down from 100. There's no question about that. They have this projection. And of course, it's particularly the case where they've been in a business where the money, where the profits were automatic, because they they start thinking about you know, questions of whether they really have the ability to make a lot of money absent this favored position, and that's not something they've had to dwell on before. So it it, it can make them uncomfortable. They're all screaming about newsprint prices. We probably scream about them a little bit too. But I mean, if if, if you compare being in the newsprint business over time to being in the newspaper business, I mean, it's a joke. And and uh, uh, newsprint prices. If you, you can graph them from any point, you know, 15 or 20 years ago or 10 years ago, and and the price of the newspaper or the price of advertising has gone up more. I mean, it it, uh, it is it is interesting to hear them yelling foul because they have moved a lot in the last 12 months, and they'll move some more in the next six months. But believe me, it's better to be in the newspaper business than the newsprint business. Zone six. Mr. Buffett, my name is Liz Pruce. I'm from New York City. I was wondering on your acquisition criteria, I know part of that is that Berkshire Hathaway won't participate in unfriendly takeovers. I wondered how that philosophy may or may not apply to your role as a member of the board of several other companies. That's, that's an interesting question. and I haven't been on the board um, of any company uh, where the CEO has brought to the board the question of a of a hostile takeover. Um, can you think of anything I'm forgetting? No, I, I, and, but there's no rule that that can't happen. Uh, so I don't know exactly. Um, I don't exactly. I don't know exactly what I would do if that came along. It's a very good question. I used to be. I used to have a whole different attitude on that. I mean, in in, in effect. Uh, um, we actually, to go back 40 years, we bought, in effect, control of, of, of companies. Uh, um, well, in, in the case of Berkshire, uh, Malcolm Chase, the chairman, was all in favor of us uh, 
buying our stock in Berkshire, but but Seabury uh, Stanton, the, the president, would not have been in favor of it, uh, and Seabury and was was the was managing the business, so so uh, it wasn't it wasn't hostile, but Seabury would not have been in favor of it. It was, but Malcolm would have been. So I don't know what I, I don't know what the situation would be today if somebody walked in at Gillette or or. Uh, Cap cities or someplace like that. I don't think it's going to happen, but I, but I have not. I don't have any policy on it at this point. What do you think we do, Charlie? I don't think uh, our behavior is totally predictable. <laughs> <laughs> and he's right. <laughs> Zone one. Yes. Neil McMahon, New York City, also a Sequoia shareholder. Uh, ben Graham investing encouraged turnover. Looking at Berkshire's holdings, concentration, and long term, are you still a 15% Phil Fisher and 85% Graham? I don't know what the percentage would be. I'm 100% Ben Graham in, in those three points I mentioned earlier, and those really count. I am very, I was very influenced by Phil Fisher when I first read his two books back around 1960 or thereabouts, and I think that they're terrific books. I think Phil is a terrific guy. Um, so I think I probably gave that percentage to, I think I first used it in Forbes one time when Jim Michaels wrote me, and I, I think I, you know, it was one of those things I just named a number. But I I think it, I, I think I'd rather think of myself as being a sort of 100% Ben Graham and 100% Phil Fisher in, in the points where they don't, uh, and they really don't contradict each other. It, it's just that they had a, vastly different emphasis. Uh, ben would not have disagreed with the proposition that if you can find a business with a high rate of return on capital that can keep using more capital on that, that that's the best business in the world. And of course, he made it, most of his money out of Geico, which was precisely that sort of business. So he recognized it. It's just that he felt that the other system of buying things that were statistically very cheap and buying a large number of them uh, was an easier policy to apply, and one that was a little more teachable. He would have felt that he would have felt that Phil Fisher's approach was less teachable than his, but his had a more limited value because it was not it was not workable with lar really large sums of money. At Graham Newman Corp, Graham Newman Corp was a closed-end fund. Oh, it was, it was technically an open-end fund, but it had six million dollars of of net worth, and, and Newman and Graham, the partnership that was affiliated with, it, had six million. So you had a you had a total pool of 12 million. Well, you could go around buying little machine tool companies, stocks in machine tool companies, whatever it might be, that all statistically cheap. And that was a very good group operation. Uh, and he had to, you have, if you own a lousy business, you have to sell it at, at some point. I mean, if you own a group of lousy businesses, you better hope some of them get taken over or something happens. You need turnover. If you own a wonderful business, uh, you know, you don't, you, you don't want turnover, basically. Charlie? What was interesting to me about the Phil Fisher businesses is that a very great many of them didn't last as wonderful businesses. One of his businesses was Title Insurance and Trust Company, which dominated the state of California. It had the biggest title plant, which was maintained by hand, and it had great fiscal solvency and integrity and so forth. It just dominated a lucrative field, and along came the computer. And now you could create a, for a few million dollars a title plant and keep it up without an army of clerks. And pretty soon we had 20 different title companies and they would go to great big customers like big lenders and big real estate brokers and pay them outlandish commissions by the standards of yore. And uh, 
and bid away huge blocks of business. And, and in due course, in the state of California, the aggregate earnings of all the title insurance com companies combined went below zero, starting with a virtual monopoly. Well, so it looked like a monopoly. So, so, uh, very few companies are so safe that you can just look ahead 20 years and and technology is sometimes your friend and it's sometimes your bitter enemy. If uh, title insurance and trust company had been smart, they would have looked on that computer, which they saw as a cost reducer, as one of the worst curses that ever came to man. You can, it probably takes more business experience and insights to some degree to apply Phil Fisher's approach than it does Graham's approach. If you, uh, uh, the only problem is you may be shut out of doing anything for a long time with Ben's approach, and, and, and you may have a, gr a lot of difficulty in doing it with big money. But if you strictly applied, for example, his working capital test to security, you know, if you, it, 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 it will work. It just may not work on a very big scale, and, and there may be periods when you're not, you're not doing much. Ben really was more of a teacher than a, 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 I mean, he had no urge to make a lot of money. It did, it, it did not interest him. So he was, he really wanted something that he thought was teachable in, in, as a <coughs> cornerstone of his philosophy and, or approach. And uh, he felt you could read his books sitting out here in Omaha and apply buying things that were statistically cheap and you didn't have to have any special insights about business or consumer behavior or anything of the sort. Uh, and I don't think there's any question about that being true, but I also don't think you can, you can manage lots of money uh, in accord with it. Zone two. Hi, Rob Pitts, shareholder from New York City. Uh, this is a question for Mr. Munger. I've noticed in the insider sales activity sheets that you've been a rather a consistent seller of your Berkshire stock over the last few months. Uh, wondered if you would comment on why you're doing this, uh, especially in light of the uh, prospective tax change uh, in capital gains where it might be reduced, which would obviously be beneficial to you and beneficial to Berkshire by reducing its deferred tax liability. Uh, I've given away a fair amount of Berkshire in the last couple of years, and I've also sold some. Uh, I uh, gave away the, the Berkshire because I thought it was the right way to behave, and I uh, sold some because I had uses for the money. He doesn't know anything I don't know. I wasn't sure I'd sell like I'd check that, but... <laughs> Selling three. Charlie has a very high percentage of his net worth in Berkshire, as do I. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That, that, I don't think it's working quite right. Hello? Okay. Hi, Goran Pulich from New York City. Um, I have a, a two-part question, first part very short. Uh, I think a lot of people have difficulty valuing businesses because of some uh, convoluted accounting schemes that, that are out there. Do you have any uh, suggestions in terms of books or something you can read where you can sort of make sense of some of the accounting uh, stories that are going around? Well, that's a good question. And, and Abe Brilloff used to write for Barron's quite frequently on, on various accounting machinations, and, and, and Barron's has continued that somewhat. But you're right that 
there are people out there who will try to paint pictures with accounting that are something far from economic reality. And sometimes the rules of accounting themselves lead to that. Uh, I would say that when the accounting confuses you, I would just tend to forget about it at, uh, as, a, as a company. I mean, it, it, it's probably, it may well be intentional, and in any event, you don't want to go near it. I, I, we have never had any great investment results from companies whose accounting we regarded as suspect. I can't, I can't think of a one. Can you try? No. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, it, it's, a, it's a very bad sign. I it, made uh, a short sale once that worked out well <laughs> in a case like that. No. It really, accounting, uh, accounting can be a, uh, accounting can offer you a lot of insight into the character of, of, of management. Um, and I would say there's a lot, you know, there's a, you run into a fair amount of uh, bad accounting. You used to call it creative accounting, but you, it, um, uh, and you probably run into a lot more if it was allowed, but some companies have been able to push their auditors pretty far, and, and uh, I would be very skeptical of anything that that looks suspicious to you. I think there have been a, there have been a couple of things written, but I can't I can't think of where they've appeared, where people talk about the questions of you know what. Obviously, if if some prepaid expense uh, deferred asset accounts start building up uh, suspiciously high. And inventories look out of line, you know, with sales and particularly the trend of them and all that. You, you want to look twice at companies like that. Life insurance, uh, you know, frequently that uh, you know we see weak accounting in. It. Uh, you can, when you don't have a product where revenues and expenses are being matched up on something close to cash in the short term, you have the opportunity for people playing games with numbers. And, and some people have learned how to do that very well, and they've, and they've sometimes created long-lasting stock manipulation or promotion schemes that have enriched themselves at the, or they've enriched the managers or the creators of it at the expense of the public over time. If you ever get suspicious about accounting, just go on to the next company. Zone four. Yes, um, Ms. Wasserman from Chicago. In order to understand the reinsurance business a little better, can you explain your relationship with Lloyd's of London in the marketplace, how you, which is probably the leader in the field, how often you compete directly, or if you've ever done reinsurance business for them since they've had losses in recent years, and how you see the industry changing as their economics changes? Well, Lloyd's, which is not an insurance company, as you know, but a, but a, uh, well, originally it was a place. It was a coffee house, but it, it's it. Uh, people think what it, it's a it's a place where uh, a large number of syndicates operate and congregate in a given physical location, uh, and it's had a history for um, larger, more exotic uh, uh, risks over time. Lloyd's has lost its relative position to a to a fairly significant de degree in the last 10 or so years, um, partly, be well, in significant part because of bad results, which had the other effects of causing capital to withdraw and, and people who backed the syndicates to become unhappy. So Lloyd's is still an important competitive factor in the reinsurance business, 
and in certain specialized kinds of primary insurance. It's a very, you know, it's a very important factor, but it's, 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 not, a, it's, it's not the factor it was 10 or 15 years ago, and, and I'm not sure how Berkshire's capital compares with the capital of all those syndicates at Lloyd's, but it certainly changed in its relative importance in the last five or 10 years, and the ability of Lloyd's to attract capital with the problems they had has been diminished, although they're they're, uh, uh, they're they're working on that problem, but we regard Lloyd's as a competitor just like we would regard any one of a number of reinsurance companies as competitor. But we also do uh, business with a number of syndicates at Lloyd's, and we'll probably do a lot of business over the next ten years with various syndicates. Charlie, yeah, L L Lloyd's is a very interesting institution because it had this reputation for integrity, what they paid off and what the San Francisco fire and so on and so on. And, but I would argue that 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of slop and folly got into Lloyd's and certain syndicates particularly. And too many commissions coming off the top as the same risks circulated around the system. Uh, too much fine tailoring and three hour lunches with fine wines. and. <laughs> it wasn't right, and they got in a lot of trouble. Yeah, they, actually, uh, in the history of Berkshire, the, the most significant insurance problem we ever had was in, in connection with Lloyd's almost, or certain syndicates at Lloyd's, almost 20 years ago. And, and uh, uh, as, as Charlie said, they had this terrific reputation, behavioral reputation, over um, centuries. Uh, and I think that uh, they, they coasted for a while on that, and, and we had a behavioral problem with, with uh, in one situation, and it was it was very expensive to us. Uh, so we may have gotten an early lesson in in what was coming. Uh, there are a lot of different syndicates at Lloyd's, and there are different people running them, and and they have they have had different standards of behavior to some extent, and and people who assumed that because they were dealing with Lloyd's that they would have no problems of any kind if I not otherwise. But they will, they will continue to be a major force in insurance, and they will get by their present troubles, and, and, and they'll probably come out of it uh, better structured than they went in. Was that zone five that we did there? Yeah. For Christopher Jones from uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. I had a couple of questions for you. Uh, you've mentioned several times today about the difficulty and uh, the frustration that you both have in trying to find capable uh, companies to acquire or acquire parts of in the United States. And I realize that, of course, when we own Coca-Cola and Gillette, we are a part of the global environment. But it's uh, surprising to me that there haven't been any global franchises or global managements that have been uh, interesting to either of you that I, I and I realize in the past we've owned some pieces of some so I was uh, questioned because of the size of Berkshire now uh, might we see something more of a global uh, flavor to the portfolio and second question you've also addressed the uh, intelligent use of cash as something that you look for in management uh, many management teams now are buying back their own shares because they can't find anything cheaper or better in the marketplace. Does your current philosophy of not buying back your own shares 
suggest that maybe you think Berkshire is overpriced at these prices? Well, we have we have never uh, we've never bought back shares. We actually bought a few back in the '60s, but we we basically have never bought back shares. Although there were plenty of times when we thought it would be quite attractive to do it, but we've also felt that if we could create more than a dollar of market value by and, and maybe well more than well over a dollar market value by retaining a dollar that that on balance that that would work out better over time uh, as long as we can find ways to use the cash which overall we feel will turn dollar bills into something larger than dollar bills we will we'll keep retaining the money and we won't measure that on whether we can find anything this week or this month but we'll certainly measure it based on whether we can find anything in a couple of years always we've had, we've had we've we've had dry spells actually right now there's there's a little more going on than usual but but uh, we've had we've had dry spells uh, um, a lot of times over over a 20 odd year period and uh, you know as I said I wound up the partnership during one dry spell um, so that it will be me it, it's measured partly on what's going on now and it's measured partly on, on, on the expectancy uh, and I don't think whether our stock was selling at X or three quarters of X right now would would make a lot of difference but it would make a difference if we thought we couldn't find things to do uh, with the money externally the question about about non-domestic operations and as you as you mentioned we've got uh, um, almost eight billion dollars in coca-cola and Gillette combined and coke has eighty percent plus of their earnings from non-us sources and Gillette has maybe two-thirds or thereabouts so so you can argue that uh, almost 40 percent of the net worth of Berkshire 35 to 40 percent is operating outside the United States right just in those two investments alone in terms of buying a business outright uh, we don't preclude buying uh, a non-US US domicile business but it's not too likely that it'll happen. We'd, we'd like to do it, particularly if it were large and if we understood it. But are we as likely to get a fix on a Hellsbergs of Europe as is a Hellsberg as we would a Hellsbergs in the United States? You know, I doubt it. I just don't know whether we would develop as much confidence in understanding the scene in which they operated and understanding the management and all that. But we might. It, uh, it would have to be a pretty simple business. And it would have to be a business where we thought we really understood the moat for a long time. And it would have to be a business where we could establish a rapport with the management despite coming from somewhat different backgrounds. It's not impossible, but I would say it's, you know, it's, it's less than likely. Uh, Charlie? No, I've got nothing to add. Zone 6? Hi there. My name is... Lee DeBroff from Morgantown, West Virginia. Um, ever since the Solomon debacle, it appears that you have attracted more and more media attention. In this regard, there have been numerous displays that would appear to be distractions from the actual business of investing. To wit, we've watched as you attended Bill Gates' wedding in Hawaii and bought a personal computer and now wear striking designer ties. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yesterday, uh, Bill, Bill would have invited me to the wedding you if I hadn't been at Solomon. But <laughs> uh, yesterday we got those pennants uh, <laughs> during the rain out. 
Um, a very serious question. How, now that you've become this media darling, how, how can you assure us that you're still keeping your eyes concentrated on the proverbial ball? <laughs> well, I do get more mail than I used to, so we, we've developed a little more of a system on that. But I just I, I do what I like to do, and uh, uh, just take speeches. I probably get invite, asked to make maybe 20 times as many speeches as I would have been asked to make 10 years ago, but I make the same number. I, uh, you know, I've got the... I've got my own selection process for what I do on that. And it's the same way, you know, I'm invited to, you know, I don't know how many uh, dinner tributes, et cetera. And, uh, you know, basically, I, I, don't, I don't change the way I, what I do because I don't want to change the way. If I, if I wanted something else, if, if while I was building Berkshire, that was being done to end up in some other spot, I'd have been there by now. And, uh, it just doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't change anything. It does change the volume of mail, but I've I've got that, so that that is not a big distraction. Pardon me? Oh, I'll remain in Omaha. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, I, if I if I if I hadn't wanted to be in Omaha, I I, I would have figured out ways to, to change. And it'd been very easy to change decades ago. I think I think it's you know we got a lot of people here who aren't from Omaha, but but. Uh, that's their problem. I mean, <laughs> I've been uh, watching Warren for a long time, and people who are concerned that he will change have a huge appetite for needless worry. <laughs> the odds that I will change are about as good as the odds that Charlie will change. <laughs> I, I, the, the male thing is a, you know. I wish it didn't. Uh, there, was, there was an easier way to handle it because, but, uh, but uh, you essentially can't answer all the letters you get. That's that simple, and that, that's about the. Once you get past that and get a form letter that takes care of it, that's that takes care. Of it. Zone one. Yes, uh, I'm Samuel Park from Tulsa, Oklahoma. My question is regarding Geico. I noticed that for the last five years, their return on equity has come down every year. Is this something? signifies change of a business or just temporary things? Questions about Geico's return on equity? Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, it, it's true. It has come down to some extent. Uh, the Geico's growth is more or less a function of, uh, of basically, I mean, there's a, there's a natural rate of growth there, and the growth in capital has been greater than the, the, the growth rate in premium volume and an invested asset, so that Achieving the same success on underwriting and achieving the same success on investments will produce a lower return on capital unless they buy in stock, which they have done fairly significantly, but that's limited by availability, too. But it's a very good business, but it's not a business where if you double the capital, you can double the earnings uh, uh, easily. Charlie? Uh, nothing to add. Zone two. Um, my name is Mark Hake from Scottsdale, and I think your question, uh, my question about foreign equity investment was pretty much answered by the other gentleman, but um, I noticed that you had made an investment in Guinness in the past, and uh, can you comment on that? Do you, is it still owned? And if not, why not? We don't comment on purchases and sales of securities or ownership unless either we're legally required to or they hit this threshold level where, where we report annually. And we move the threshold level up 
as our assets move up. We don't move it up as a percentage of assets. So that that uh, we used as a cutoff this year, uh, 300 million, I believe, of market value as to where we reported. Now, if we'd owned the same amount of Guinness, which I'm not saying that we did, but if we'd owned the same amount of Guinness on December 31st, 1994, it would not have hit that threshold as we had on December 31st, 93. It would not have hit that threshold. And we really don't want to get in the business where we're where we are talking at all about and what we're buying or selling. We get a lot of speculation on that, but, but it, it's of no use to Berkshire to be talking about uh, uh, purchases or sales. If we were, if we were acquiring uh, a piece of land downtown and we bought a quarter of it, what we intended to buy, for example, we would not feel we were benefited by a front page story in the paper saying that we were acquiring land. And it, uh, we are not in the business of giving investment advice, basically. We'll talk about our principles. Um, so the only conclusion you can come to uh, about Guinness or anything else that does not show up on our list at year end is that we did not own $300 million worth at market value at that, at that time. Zone three. Yes, Mr. Buffett, my name is Don Bresca. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. Recently, I've noticed you wearing an IZOT shirt with Berkshire Hathaway, and in the middle, there was a fist grasping cash. Uh, is that the new insignia? And the second question is, is that a shirt available to stockholders? The shirt is not available. That shirt was a gift from someone, and, and the, uh, the shirt is not available to uh, stockholders, but, but uh, you can draw your own conclusions about the meaning of it. Soon, zone four. Yes, uh, I'm Lyle McIntosh from Missouri Valley, Iowa, about 25 miles up the road. And uh, Warren, recognizing this is corn country and I farm, and there's several other farmer shareholders, this meeting hits right in the middle of corn planting. Could you move it back about three weeks? <laughs> and also, uh, I noticed Phil Correa was on uh, Wall Street Week Friday night. I'm sorry I don't know his marital status, but if he is available, have you thought about introducing him to Mrs. B? <laughs> Well, Mrs. B, incidentally, was out working yesterday. We, I, I went out and dropped by to see her about uh, 4 o'clock, and she was, uh, she was doing fine. She will be 102 uh, late this year, and my guess is she will be working on her 102nd birthday as well. So, but I'll let, uh, I'll let Phil and Mrs. B handle their own affairs in that respect. He's probably a little too young for her. <laughs> Tone 5. Uh, I'm Ken Donovan, a Cincinnati investor. Uh, you've addressed the subject of your, your feelings about buying entire foreign corporations. I wonder if you'd say something about, our, is Berkshire looking for opportunities to buy, we'll call them near-franchise companies that might be based overseas, uh, buying a stock interest or a part interest, and also how do you feel about fixed debt investments of overseas companies? De debt investments, was that? Yeah, well, the first part was buying a stock investment rather than a whole company. Right. The second part was debt investments. Yeah. Right. Well, we're open to buying anything. Uh, 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 when, when you say, are we looking at them, I, I've never been quite sure how we look at things anyway. I mean, they just seem to sort of pop up as from reading or something of the sort. But, but we, we are, we are uh, it's less likely we end up doing it for some of the reasons I've given earlier. But... Uh, we have bought stock in companies that 
uh, aside from Guinness, that are domiciled outside of the United States, and uh, uh, we would have, uh, we could conceivably buy debt instruments. We don't buy a lot of debt instruments anyway, so uh, it'd be very unlikely. But we will do anything we think makes sense uh, at Berkshire that's compatible with the way we want to operate, and certainly we don't care where the, the domicile is not that important. Charlie? Okay, zone, zone five, is it? Uh, Scott Spilkovich, New York City. Uh, my question is regarding the Hellsburg acquisition. Can you comment on things such as the acquisition price, your sales and profit expectations, and uh, how much debt were on the books at the time of the acquisition? This is in reference to which acquisition? Hellsburg. We, we have not put out the figures on Hellsburgs, and, and, and we won't be, but uh, we evaluate. The sales have been published at about $280 million for the year that ended in February, and there'll be a considerably more in the, in the current year. But we have not uh, uh, put out the figures. I can tell you that, obviously, that we think that uh, in terms of the amount we are laying out, in terms of shares and or cash, um, we think over time that it's going to be a very decent acquisition. It's it's the same line of reasoning we've applied in, in other businesses. Uh, um, retailing, as I mentioned earlier, is the kind of business where you have to stay smart over time, and we've got a terrific manager, a fellow named Jeff Comet, who's going to uh, be running it, and his record is, is extremely good, and uh, I would bet the record would, would stay good it earns good returns on on invested capital or we wouldn't be we wouldn't uh, be buying into it but, uh, we always look for for good returns on capital and a lot of companies in the jewelry business do not get re good returns on capital i mean it's not an industry that uh, uh, where most of the participants are prosperous uh, it takes it takes unusual sales per square foot compared to competitors uh, to succeed in that. And we have one operation that does that in, in spades at, at, at Borsheim's and then a different type of operation that does it at, uh, at Hellsberg's. The typical jewelry store operation is not a, is not a very good business, but, uh, but we think we've got two, two good operations. Charlie? Yeah, we frequently find that owners of entire businesses have schizophrenia. They uh, want to sell their business for a little more than it's worth, taking stock so they don't have to pay taxes, and they want the stock to be the kind of a, to be in a kind of business that will make just one dumb acquisition, theirs, and thereafter will guard the stock like gold, making no more dumb acquisitions. Needless to say, the world is not that easy, and. Uh, I think over time we've made acquisitions that were fair on both sides and averaged out they've worked well for Berkshire. And I think a company that behaves that way is giving the best long-term value to the private owner who wants to sell. You do not want to sell your business for stock to a firm that likes issuing stock. Zone 6. That was six. Hmm. Where do we have the mic? 
Oh, that. I don't think it's on. Can you? Can you hear me now? Yeah, sure. Jack Landing from Knoxville, Tennessee. I have a question which may not be appropriate for the officers of Berkshire to answer, but I think I'll ask it anyway. Uh, you focused on intrinsic value in your annual report, and you suggested that by reviewing the grade pages in the back that one could come up with a, possibly come up with a value of intrinsic value for Berkshire. I've made an effort to do this, and uh, I think I come up with a price-to-earnings ratio of somewhere around 21, which seems to be a little overvalued. Uh, I'd like to ask uh, you, Mr. Buffett, uh, if you would care to divulge what you believe is the intrinsic value of Berkshire. And if you're not willing to do that, do you consider the price of Berkshire at this level to be fair? I, every year I get asked that in one form or another, and I always say that I don't want to spoil the fun for those of you who are working out the intrinsic value for yourself. You have all the numbers that we have that are, that are key to it, and uh, I would say that, <clears throat> that there are some, there's some important factors besides PE. I, I mentioned earlier that I thought that the uh, page where we describe float, for example, is uh, uh, probably as important a page as there, there is in the report. And uh, then the question is, you know, how, what do you do with the capital as you allocate it over time? And, and obviously that makes a difference in intrinsic value too. But I would say in a general way that I, and this has been true virtually all of the time, that uh, uh, I think, uh, I would say that I, uh, the intrinsic value of Berkshire in relation to its, I'll put it the other way, the price of Berkshire in relation to its intrinsic value I think probably offers as much value as, as uh, uh, or, or more than the majority of stocks that I say, but I, want, I don't want to go any further than that. Charlie? I've got nothing to add. The, uh, your story about the fun of working it out, there was a famous English headmaster who used to say to each graduating class, he said, say, 5% of you are going to become criminals, and I know just who you are, but I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to deprive your lives of a sense of excitement. And <laughs> we'll explain that later on. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, there's, a, there's a lot more to, uh, there, there's more to intrinsic value, as we've discussed earlier, than just adding up what you think you can sell the pieces for at any given time, because it is, the, it is a prospective figure. It is, it is, the, it is future cash discounted back to the to the present, and capital allocation is a good part of that. What you expect the float to do, for example, over time, uh, would not, that would lead to a large swing in possible numbers uh, relative to value. I mean, if, if when we had bought national indemnity in 1967, when it had whatever it had, 15 or 20 million in float, uh, we didn't see it then, but if, if we could have foreseen the eventual development of float over time, uh, 
it might have turned out that the intrinsic value of national indemnity was many multiples of what most people might have thought at the time or probably what we thought at the time. Zone one. Uh, Richard Duchek from Melbourne, Florida. I have a two-pronged question. Uh, first on the stock, as we all know, is uh, the first month this year we ramped up about 25 percent and then we pulled back, I guess, about 20. Just wonder if your thoughts on that. Uh, specifically, do you attribute that to the books, perhaps, or institutional buying, or, you know, what explanation you might have for that? And I, would, I would say, I'll answer that first. I would say Hagstrom's book undoubtedly had some effect on that. I, I, it's impossible to measure, but but... But that book sold a lot of copies, and my guess is that that had some effect. Okay, more so than the institutional buying, because I've heard rumors like Fidelity and whatever were buying. I, I can't. I can't. I, I just don't know the. I, I don't know how to separate out the variables, but but I would say that the, that the book was a, certainly a factor that at that time, and it, it's unreasonable to assume that it had no effect. Okay. Well, a lot of the buying came in in odd lots, so there's a lot of odd lot activity. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly okay. looked like book buyers. <laughs> Secondary question, I'm an electronics engineer by profession, so the technology sector is of prime interest to me, and I, I think we'll all agree, at least the last six to eight months has been phenomenal for the technology sector, and I also see that you're somewhat befriending Mr. Gates and inviting him into your house, etc. Is there a possibility down the road a piece of you doing some type of uh, purchase of Microsoft or acquiring that, or is there something you two could work out together? <laughs> I bought 100 shares one of the day, first day I met Bill, and that was the end of it. I, I just want to be sure I got his reports from that point on. This was personal, not in the, uh, not, not in Berkshire. Uh, there's no chance we'll be in uh, in businesses we don't understand, and I, I, I won't understand it. No, you're quite clear on that. I just thought maybe there'd be an exception, because apparently... Well, if you made that. an exception, he would be a good guy to make, a very good guy to make an exception with, but I, I don't think I'll make an exception. <laughs> Zone two. Uh, my name is Basio Nurima from Arlington, Texas. Uh, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger, what possibility to use these two great minds of... Uh, for a long term in life by either taking an apprenticeship in Brookshire or opening a school? I didn't follow that well, one. Well, Where are you at? Is it a question uh, of what, what, what the possibility using these two great minds of yours to, uh, to educate a new generation uh, as a long term investment in, the, in this country? to either through an apprenticeship in Brookshire for young people or open a business school? Well, let me try that one because I have a demonstrated record of non-performance. <laughs> I have had great difficulty enabling my children to know what I know. And uh, <laughs> Warren, <laughs> maybe you have failed less. <laughs> my children in many ways are a lot smarter than I am, so I had a different experience, really. No, I, I think you can, um, you know, I, I've mainly learned by reading myself, so I, 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 uh, I, don't, I don't think I have any original ideas that uh, I certainly, uh, but I've certainly got a lot. I mean, I've talked about reading Graham. I read Phil Fisher, and uh, uh, I've, I've gotten a lot of ideas uh, myself from reading, and uh, in my own case, I mean, talk about your parents having influence, you know, my parents had enormous influence, so I, I think you can, 
I think you can learn a lot from other people. In fact, I think if you learn reasonably well from other people, you don't have to get any new ideas or do much on your own. You can just apply the best of what you see. Generally speaking, I think we always get a group of, of wise people after sifting millions, but uh, I don't think anybody's invented a way to teach so that everybody is wise. It's, a, it's extraordinary how resistant some people are to learning anything. <laughs> well, and it really, and what is astounding is it's, it's how resistant they are when it's their so, in their self-interest to learn. I mean, I was always astounded by, by how much attention was was paid to Graham. I mean, he was he was regarded 40 years ago as the dean of security analysts, but how little attention was paid in terms of the principles he taught. And uh, it wasn't because people were refuting them, and it wasn't because people didn't have a self-interest in the, in learning sound investment principles. It, it was just this incredible resistance to thinking or change. I mean, I quoted Bertrand Russell one time as saying, uh, who said that, uh, um, most men would rather die than think. Many have, you know, and uh, in the financial sense, that's uh, that's very true. It, uh, it it it's not complicated. I mean, with human relations, you know, usually aren't that complicated. But and certainly, it's in people's self-interest to develop uh, habits that work well in human relations. But uh, an amazing number of people seem to mess it up one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. How much has Berkshire Hathaway been copied either in investing America or corporate America? I'm not saying we deserve to be necessarily, but but uh, people don't want to do it differently than they're presently doing it. You might argue that Mrs. B, having started what you may have seen out there this weekend with $500 in 1937, you know, with without a day in school in our life, and building that into a great enterprise, you might say, well, that is something to study. I mean, it, uh, it, you know, is it because she couldn't speak English when we got, you know, she got over her? Maybe we <laughs> cleanse people. I mean, what what are the, what, you know, what is there to learn from seeing somebody create an incredible success like that in a competitive business? She didn't invent something that that uh, the world had never seen before. She didn't have a lock on some piece of real estate that protected her from competition. You know, all of these, and yet she accomplished something that virtually no one has accomplished. Now, why aren't business schools studying her? You know, why are they talking about EVA, you know, economic value added, as we talked about earlier? Any of the, I mean, here is a success. Something has made her a success. You know, is it something, is it a 220, she's very smart, but it, is it a 220 IQ? No, it, it isn't. It's a very smart woman, but it's not, it's not something that's incapable of being replicated in the habits and the way of thinking. But who is studying her? I mean, they present her as a curiosity, but if you go to any of the top 20 business schools, you know, there's not one page that's being given to anybody to study what is an incredible success. And, I, it, I, I just I find that very interesting that, uh, uh, and to some extent, you know, I've seen it in the investment world. There's, there's this, for one thing, the high, you know, it, it, it's probably a little discouraging to a professor of management at some major business school who's gone on to get his doctorate and everything to think he has to 
come out and hang around the furniture mart. <laughs> Study a woman in a golf cart, I mean. <laughs> but you could, they'd be better off if they did. Where were we on that? Uh, what zone are we on? Four, are we? Wherever it is, zone, zone three maybe, huh? Yes, thank you. I'm Jim Ludke from Phoenix, Arizona, and I haven't been to one of your annual meetings for about 10 years now. The last one was down at the Red Lion Inn by the water, and uh, I congratulate you on your popularity. I wish I'd bought more stock. And, <laughs> <laughs> but like Charlie, I too have been giving mine away for charitable purposes, so your beneficial effects have uh, reciprocated and rippled throughout the economy. I congratulate you. Oh, I congratulate you. What, uh, what do you think has changed? Well, one thing is that Ben Graham commenting on what you just said. I'm a student of Ben Graham, and he said it never ceased to amazement how widely read he was and least followed. But how have you changed in the last 10 years? Much, if any, or none at all, or? Well, we'll let Charlie, he'd been watching me. <laughs> I'd, I'd say about one stone. <laughs> Takes one to know one. Yeah. If, if, if we'd wanted to change, we would have changed a long time ago. I mean, I, I've never believed much in this theory of, you know, if I, if I have X, 2X instead of X, then I'm going to do this or that, and, you know, or... I'll take this job I don't like now, and I'll get one I like later on. Or it doesn't make much sense to me. I mean, there aren't, there aren't that many years around, so you ought to be doing what you like at the present time. And, and Charlie and I have always followed that pretty well. Zone four. Uh, Peter Borma, Chicago. Every year you have your operating company send a check back to Omaha. What percentage do the the heads of the operating companies keep as a bonus, and how do you set that figure? Well, we have different bonus arrangements at different companies. It would be it would be a big mistake with businesses with as many different economic characteristics or as varying economic characteristics as existing as they do at Berkshire to have trying to have some formula approach that that paid managers in all of these different businesses based on a simple formula of one kind. So we have, I think, four businesses where they own a part of it. And uh, we have varying arrangements uh, with, with, with the various businesses. Some businesses, capital employed is unimportant. There simply isn't a way to employ a lot of capital. So we do not have a, a, a capital charge even at those businesses. We don't believe in going through a lot of machinations if it's going to involve peanuts at the end. So uh, some businesses have a capital charge, some businesses don't have a capital charge. If they use a lot of capital, they're going to have a capital charge is what it amounts to. Some businesses are easy business businesses, some businesses are tougher businesses. So we have different thresholds where things kick in based on that. We simply sit down and try and figure out in the case of each business what makes sense. and. Uh, uh, that usually isn't very hard to, to figure out. I mean, we want something that's fair. The best managers, we aren't going to change their behavior much by the compensation thing. We may a little bit in terms of teaching them how we think about capital employee, but in terms of their enthusiasm for the business and imagination and marketing and all that, basically we, we usually buy businesses with those people in place. But, you, but it would be 
A, it'd be wrong not to treat people fairly, and they would, they would resent it if they weren't treated fairly, too, understandably. So we, we try to have a system that rewards the things that we want to have rewarded and treats them fairly in a way that they understand they're, they're treated fairly. And I, I don't think we have... I don't think we have any two businesses that have the same arrangement. I mean, they're different in each case. Hey, incidentally, that applies in their policies, too. We don't get into to, uh, uh, very seldom, I should say, maybe once or twice, but they have different arrangements in terms of compensating their employees. Some of our businesses have budgets. Some of them don't. We don't have any budgets that come up to headquarters. We let 400 hitters swing the way they want to swing and some of them you know have a little different swings than others but they're but they're, overall they're extremely effective and they feel and we want them to feel like they own their own business but, uh, if they felt if somebody that's independently wealthy sold us a business and started and we started telling them how to swing they would tell us what we could do with it very quickly because they don't need that in life so it, what we have to do is create a a, a, a situation or maintain a situation where they're having more fun doing what they're doing than anything else they can do in life. And that's, that's, that's what we're designing for. And then we have to treat them fairly in respect to that. Charlie? Nothing to add. Zone 5? Uh, Roger Hill from Racine, Racine, Wisconsin. Gentlemen, uh, a little change of pace. C could we get uh, your opinion on the, the present situation with international exchange, do you think we have a dollar problem or is the, the Japanese have a yen problem? <laughs> well, I'm going to let Charlie answer that. <laughs> I have no comment. That's a very good question, but the, the, the trouble is anytime I say that's a very good question, it's probably because I don't know the answer. That, uh, and I, um, you know, I don't know the answer to that. But, uh, but, uh, Foreign exchange baffles me, frankly. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think in terms of purchasing power parity, because that's a, that's a natural way to approach it, but purchasing power parity does not work very well as a guide to how exchange values will behave in, in any shorter, immediate or medium, or maybe even long term, because uh, uh, the world adapts in different ways. Sometimes it adapts by high rates of inflation to a sinking currency. Usually it does. It hasn't done that, that in respect to ours, but we're only sinking relative to a couple of other important currencies. I don't have a great answer for you on that. Sorry. Zone 6. Hi, I'm Howard Winston from Cincinnati, Ohio. First, I wanted to thank you and, your you and Charlie for your sharing your time with us today. Thank you. Uh, my question is, you've repeatedly said that you see many wonderful stock ideas but can't invest because they're too small. Given that many in the audience today have a lower dollar investment threshold... <laughs> Do these stocks have names? <laughs> well said. Well, the answer to that is that we don't look anymore. That, uh, we, we assume that there are a reasonable number of opportunities as you work with smaller amounts of capital because it's always been true. I mean, it was over the years as I looked at things, uh, clearly you run into companies that are less followed as you get smaller and, and there's more chances for inefficiency when you're dealing with something where you can buy $100,000 worth of it in a month rather than $100 million. But that is not because I'm carrying around in my head the names of 25 companies that we could put 100,000 in. And I just don't look at that 
at that universe anymore. I sometimes people send me annual reports or I get letters from managers and they they say, "Won't well, you know, I've got this wonderful thing." And I look. I I usually know ahead of time, but I mean, I would first look at the size, and if the size isn't isn't right and it isn't going to be virtually any time, I don't I don't look any further because there's just no time to be looking at at uh, at all kinds of smaller opportunities. I do think. I do think if you're working with very small amounts of money that uh, that there almost always are some significant inefficiency someplace uh, uh, to find things that uh, I've mentioned to some people. When I started out, I actually went through the all of the Moody's manuals and the Standard Poor's manuals page by page, and you could, and uh, you know it's probably 20,000 pages, but but uh, uh, there were a lot of things that popped out, and none of them were in any brokerage report or anything of the sort. They were just plain overlooked, and you had to, you could, you could find out about them, but nobody was going to tell you about them. Uh, and my guess is that that continues to be true, but not on anything like the scale it was then. Charlie? Well, I can remember when you bought one membership in some duck club that had oil in, under it when you were young. Yeah, there was a company uh, called I mean, you, When you get down to one duck club membership, well, you're really scavenging for cigar butts. <laughs> But, uh, Not a bad cigar, but there were 98 shares outstanding. It was the Delta Duck Club. And the, the Delta Duck Club was founded by 100 guys who put in 50 bucks each, except two fellows didn't pay. So there were only 98 shares outstanding. They bought a piece of land down in Louisiana, and one time somebody shot downward instead of upward, and oil and gas started spewing forth out of the ground. <laughs> so they renamed it Atlet, which is Delta spelled backwards, which was sort of illustrated the sophistication of this group. And, <laughs> and a few years later, they were taking, at $3 a barrel oil, they were taking about a million dollars a year in royalties out of the uh, place. And the stock was selling at $29,000 a share. And it was earning $10,000 a share. No, it was earning about, earning about $7,000 a share after tax, about 11,000 pre-tax. And it had about 20,000 a share in cash. And it was a long-lived field. So, you know, I use that sometimes as an example of efficient markets because somebody called me and offered me a share of it. And uh, uh, those things, you know, is 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 that an efficient market or not? You know, twenty-nine thousand for twenty thousand of cash plus eleven thousand of royalty income and twenty-five cent gas and three-dollar oil. I don't think so. That uh, uh, you can find things out there. That, uh, I'll give you hunting rights on all my duck clubs in the future. Uh, zone one. Don't think the mic. Oh. How do Berkshire and Berkshire companies protect themselves against lawsuit-happy lawyers, and is it possible for American businesses to survive the financial and time-consuming costs of dealing with lawyers? Well, it's a good question, and we've we've probably had less litigation than any company that, you know, with a $25 billion market value in America. But, uh, uh, but it's, uh, you know, and, and we, we were sued one time at Blue Chip Stamps. What was it for, Charlie? Uh, how many billion by some guy? That, Lots. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, they're, they're, you, you, you cannot protect yourself against lawsuits, and there, there are, um, there's certainly a lot of Frivolous ones, we've, like I say, we have, we, it's not been a drain 
on our time, or money, but particularly time uh, to date. And uh, I think one thing you'd have to do is that if, if you ran into anything of that sort, you'd, you, would, uh, you would not pay and you would make life as, try to make life comparably difficult for the other party as they made it for you, but that has not been our experience so far. Charlie? You know? Yeah, well, I can tell an Omaha story on that one, which demonstrates the Berkshire Hathaway technique for minimizing lawsuits. When I was a very young boy, I said to my father, who was a practicing lawyer here in Omaha, why do you do so much work for X, who was an overreaching blowhard? <laughs> And so little work for Grant McFadden, who was such a wonderful man. And my father looked at me as though I was slightly slow in the head, and he said, Charlie, he said, Grant McFadden treats his employees right, his customers right, everybody right. When he gets involved with somebody who's a little nuts, he gets up from his desk and walks to where they are and extricates himself as soon as he can. And he says, Charlie, a man like Grant McFadden doesn't have enough law business to keep you in school. <laughs> ah, but X, he said. He's a walking minefield of continuous legal, legal troubles, and he's a wonderful client for a lawyer. Now, my father was trying to teach me, and I must say it worked beautifully, because I decided that I would adopt the Grant McFadden approach, and uh, I would argue that Warren independently reached the same approach very early in life, Boy, has that saved us a lot of trouble. That is a, it is a good system. You can't, you, we basically have the attitude that you can't make a good deal with a bad person. And you can, and that means you just, we just forget about it. I mean, we don't try and protect ourselves by contracts or getting into all kinds of, uh, you know, due diligence or it just, we just forget about it. We, 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 we can do fine over, over time dealing with people that we like and admire and trust. So we, we have never, and a lot of people do get the idea because the, 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 the bad actor will tend to try and tantalize you in one way or another, and uh, uh, you won't win. It, uh, it just pays to avoid them. Uh, and I, I, we started out with that, with that attitude, and you know, maybe one or two experiences have convinced us even more so that that's the, the, way, to, the way to play the game. Zone two. I'm Clarence Cafferty from Long Pine, Nebraska. Uh, I'd like to know if we can get another uh, 400 hitter uh, by uh, starting another uh, Borshine store someplace in this United States. Well, it's an interesting question about both the Borsheims and the Mart. I mean, they, they and of course, they, they're owned, as you probably know, historically by the same family. I mean, it was Mrs. B's sister's family that, that, that uh, that bought Borsheim's, but in effect started it virtually from scratch. And the, uh, both of those institutions offer this incredible selection, low prices brought about by huge volume, low operating costs, and all of that. Operating multiple locations, you would get some benefit, obviously, from the name and, and, and the reputation, but you would lose something in terms of the amount of selection that could be offered. There's, there's $50 million plus at retail of, of, of jewelry at, at, at Borsheim's one location. Well, when someone wants to buy a ring or a pearl necklace or something of the sort, 
they can see more offerings at a place like that than they possibly could at somebody who's trying to maintain inventory at 20 or 50 locations. Similarly, that gives us a volume out of a given location that results in operating costs that, again, can't be matched if you uh, have an enormous number of locations. Uh, so I think those businesses tend to be more successful in that particular mode as, as, as one location businesses. Now, Hellsbergs will be bringing merchandise to people all over the country at malls, and they will do through that mode of operation. They perform that exceptionally well. But Borsheim's can't be Hellsbergs, and Hellsbergs can't be Borsheim's. They're both going for two different, in a sense, two different customers and, uh, to some degree. And, uh, Saul Price, uh, Charlie's friend who started the Price Club, the first big wholesale club, said that part of his his uh, success was due to figuring out the customer he didn't want. I think that's right, isn't it? Right. Yeah, and you have to figure out what you're good at, what, who you really can offer something special to. Borsheim's offer something very special to people, but in part it it comes about through being at one location. You can you can see more of almost any kind of jewelry you want there, then you're going to see virtually any place in the world. And that will bring people there, or it will bring male people there. And that gives you operating costs that are many, oh, 20 percentage points off of what somebody else will be doing without that pulling power. And that in turn enables you to offer the lower prices, which keeps the circle going. I mean, it's, a, it, it, it's very hard to replicate something like that. And trying to do it in 10 spots probably wouldn't work well. But it's a question you ask yourself as you go along, obviously, when you... McDonald's certainly did well by deciding to open a second store. I mean... <laughs> Zone 3? Warren, I'm Frank Martin from Elkhart, Indiana. You have written extensively on the subject of the immutability of return on equity for American industry as a whole being stuck in the 12 to 13 percent range. What forces do you see since we're above the mean to cause that number to regress to the mean over time? Yeah, it, it, it's true. It has, um, it has been higher in the last few years, although Fortune's got some interesting figures in the current issue on the 500 that shows decade by decade what the return has been on the uh, Fortune 500 group, which is a shifting group, of course, and it's it's tended to stick. Although I would say it was more between 12 and 13 than 11 and 12, probably in that one. The return, to some extent, in certain businesses, has gotten a big kick because they finally put the health liabilities on the balance sheet and therefore reduced equity. So if you uh, anything you do that tends to pull down equity, if it doesn't change your ability to do the same sales volume, it's, it's leveraged American business in effect by putting the uh, the health. Uh, I, I liabilities on the balance sheet. I, I, uh, I'm. It, it may be wrong. It may be that business can earn 15 percent or so. But I, I think competitive factors tend to, over time, keep pushing that number down somewhat. And uh, 12 or 13, when you think about it, is not bad at all. I mean, it's 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 a level with 7 percent interest rates that allows stocks and equity to be worth much more when employed in equity than, than, than elsewhere in the world. Uh, but 
If I had to pick a figure for the next 10 years, I would pick some figure between 12 and 13, but that doesn't mean I'd be right on it. Charlie? Yeah, uh, I, I think all of those published averages overstate what's earned anyway. They're, they're the biggest companies. They're the winners. The, they're the ones whose stock sells at high multiples so they can issue it to other people uh, for high-earning assets. And many of the low-return people are constantly being dropped out of the figures. Now, you can say that was true in the past, too. But uh, I, I, it would be remarkable to me if, if, if on average, uh, American business earn 13% on capital after taxes. Those figures, incidentally, isn't a huge item, but, it, but, it, but it's not totally insignificant. They don't show as a cost, for example, the cost of stock options. And the American shareholders paid that, so the, the American shareholder uh, has not gotten the returns on equity shown by, by, uh, by those numbers, although it, it's, it's not a huge factor. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was, you know, two or three-tenths of a percent uh, just for that one cost that's omitted. If you let me omit my costs, I can show a very high return on equity. <laughs> Zone four. Jeff Peskin um, from New York. And I have a question for you. It's really more of an observation in that you've written about when you look at acquiring a business, you, you look at a lot at, at how they allocate capital. And my question is, w once you acquire a stake in a company, um, do you find that um, just by the fact that you are helping doing the allocation of capital and doing the compensation, that that alone makes a company have a, a lot higher return? Or is there some benefit by the fact that you own or some, some major shareholder owns a big slug of the company that also allows a company to increase its return on capital? Yeah, well, that's a good question. The answer is sort of some of the time, some of the places. It's just the... Uh, there's no question in a business that earns a high rate on capital that doesn't have natural ways to employ that money within the business that we actually may contribute significantly to the long-term results of that business by taking the capital out because that if they don't have a place to use it, nevertheless, they might well use it someplace. And we, we have the whole universe to spread that money over. So we can take the money that earned in some operating business, and, and we can buy part of the Coca-Cola company with it and buy into another wonderful business, whereas very few managements probably would do that. So there's an advantage there. Now, on the other hand, Hellsbergs, for example, is, will probably grow very substantially. They'll probably use all the capital they generate. Maybe they'll even use more. Well, they don't really need us for that. I mean, they would have done that under any circumstances. We may actually give them the ability to grow even a little faster because if a company, and this is not the, these are not the Hellsberg's figures, but if a company is earning 20% on equity but can grow 25% a year, you know, they're going to feel equity strains at some point. And we, we, are, we obviously would love the idea of supplying extra capital that would earn 20% on equity. So there can be some advantage to having us as a parent in terms of sending capital to the business as well as taking capital from the business. We also, I think, can be helpful in some situations in that once we are there, a lot of the rituals, of, particularly in a public company, but a lot, a lot of the things that people waste time doing in a business, they don't have to do with us. I mean, they, they're, they're an awful lot of time spent in some businesses 
just preparing for committee meetings and directors meetings and all kinds of things like that show and tell stuff and none of that's needed with us we won't go near them and so we, we really free them up to spend a hundred percent of the time thinking about what is good for the business over time if they have extra money they don't have to worry about what to do with it if they need extra money for a good business it'll be supplied so there there are some advantages that way um, and I guess uh, Charlie can you think of any further yeah I think our chief contribution to the businesses we acquire is what we don't do it's hard to continue to grow at the rate you've grown in the past because the company has gotten so big and uh, I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. And my second question, which is um, totally unrelated, but um, <clears throat> I've also read uh, where you're very good with numbers, with working things in your head, and um, I'm totally a rookie when it comes to economics and accounting and things like that, but uh, I'm very good with numbers and keeping things in my head, and uh, I'm wondering if there's some way uh, a mathematician who knows very little about the business world, uh, what I could read or what I could do to learn um, how better to invest uh, and how you did that. Well, going to the first question, when you say it's, it's going to be hard, it's going to be impossible. I mean, I'll, that's the answer. We, 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 we cannot compound money at 23% for, for, from, from a $12 billion base. It, it, uh, we don't know how to do that, and, and uh, it would be a mistake for anybody to think that we could come close to that. We still we think we can do okay with money, but 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 the uh, we did not start with a twelve billion dollar base and, and we've never seen anybody in the world compound numbers like that at that rate. So we'll forget it that part of it. But we'll there are intelligent things we can be doing. The second part of the question I don't think I don't think any great amount of mathematical aptitude is, 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 is not aptitude, but mathematical knowledge is a, uh, advanced math is of no use uh, in the investment process. An understanding of mathematical relationships, sort of a, an ability to quantify uh, a numeracy, as they call it, I think that's generally helpful in investments because it something that tells you when things make sense or don't make sense or sort of how one an item in one area relates to something someplace else, but that that doesn't really require any great mathematical ability. It, it really requires sort of a mathematical awareness and a, and a numeracy. And and uh, um, I think it is a help to be able to see that. I mean, I think Charlie and I probably, when we read about one business, we're always thinking of it against the, a screen of dozens of businesses. It's just sort of automatic and. Uh, but that's just like a ball, you know, a scout in baseball thinking about one baseball player against an alternative. I mean, you only have a given number on the squad, and, and, and they're thinking, you know, one guy may be a little faster, one guy can hit a little bit better, all of that sort of thing. And it's always in your mind you are you are you are prioritizing and selecting in some in in, in some manner. Um, my own feeling about the best way to apply that is just to to read everything in sight. You know, I mean, if you you're reading a few hundred annual reports a year, and you've and you've read Graham and Fisher and a few things. Uh, you'll soon see whether it kind of falls into place or not. Charlie? Yeah, 
I think the set of numbers, the one set of numbers in America that are the best quick guide to measuring one business against another are the value line numbers. I'd agree with that. That stuff on the log scale paper going back 15 years, that is the best one-shot description of a lot of big businesses that exists in America. I, I can't imagine anybody being in the investment business involving common stocks without that thing on the shelf. And if you sort of have in your head how all of that looks in different industries and different businesses, then you've got a backdrop against which to measure. I mean, you know, if you'd never, if you'd never watched a baseball game and never seen a statistic on it, you wouldn't know whether a 300 hitter was a good hitter or not. You have to have some kind of a, a mosaic there that, that you're, that, that, uh, that your thinking is implanted against, in effect, and, and uh, the value line figures, uh, you know, <clears throat> they they cycle it every 13 weeks, and if you if you ripple through that, uh, you'll have a pretty good idea of what's happened over time in in in, in American business. By the way, I pay no attention to their timeliness ratings oh, no. or stock ratings or no. none of that means anything at the. <laughs> Uh, it's too bad they have to put that there, but that, uh, <laughs> uh, it's the statistical material, not the... Not I would the, like to have that material going all the way back. They cut it off about, what, 15 years back? Yeah, but I saved the old ones. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I wish I had that in the office, but I don't. Yeah, yeah we, Charlie and I, uh, I, I, maybe uh, even I do it more. I, we tend to go back and, I mean, if I'm buying Coca-Cola, I'll probably go back and read the Fortune articles from the 1930s on it or something. I, I like a lot of historical background on things just to sort of get it in my head as to how the business has evolved over time and what's been permanent and what hasn't been permanent and all of that. I probably do that more for fun than for, for actually uh, decision-making, but it, uh, I, think, I think it is... I think if you think about it, we're, we're trying to buy businesses we want to own forever, you know, and, and if, you're, if you're thinking that way, you might as well see what it's been like to own them forever and, and look back a ways. Zone 6. I'm Stuart Horish from Salina, Kansas. When you first bought part of Wells Fargo a few years back, I looked at it and I couldn't tell it was any better than any of the other banks. I think now anybody that would look at it can tell it's better than almost any bank. Now you've bought PNC Bank, and again, I can't see how it's distinguished from any of the other banks. What did you see in PNC Bank that made you select it over all the other banks that were available? <laughs> well, we're not going to give any stock advice on that. So <laughs> I think that uh, that going back to Wells, it was very clear that uh, if you, I, I knew something about Carl Reichert and, and to a lesser extent at that time, Paul Hazen from having met him and also from having read a lot of things they said. So they, they were different. They were certainly different than the typical banker. And then the question was, is how much did that difference make in terms of how they would run the place? And uh, they ran into some very heavy seas subsequently. And, and I think probably the difference, I probably think those human differences that were perceived earlier are what enabled them to come through as well as they did. But uh, that's about all I can say on, on banks. Well, we, we might add to that slightly because that Wells Fargo thing is a very interesting example. They had a huge concentration of real estate lending, a field in which people took the biggest, that was the biggest collapse in 
40 or 50 years in that field so that if they had been destined to suffer the same sort of average loss per real estate loan that an ordinary bank would have suffered, the place would have been broke. So we were basically betting that their real estate lending was way better than average. And indeed, it was. And they also handled it on the way down way better than average. So you can argue that, that everybody else was looking at this horrible concentration of real estate loans and this sea of troubles in the real estate field and in bankers to the real estate field, and they just assumed that Wells Fargo was going to go broke. And we figured, no, that, that since their loans were way higher quality and their loan collection methods were way higher quality than others, it would be all right. And so it worked out. Probably couldn't have told that. If we hadn't, if we hadn't gone a little further, though, then just looking at numbers, we would not have been able to make that decision. Zone one. David Carr, Durham, North Carolina. Uh, Tam Brands and U.S. Tobacco are two companies which are primarily single-focused uh, product companies that seem to possibly have some barriers to growth in unit sales and pricing and have employed a strategy of returning cash to shareholders through stock repurchases. Uh, both companies have at times when they thought the stock was uh, at a discount to intrinsic value used debt to uh, in accentuate the repurchases. Those companies recently have talked about problems with uh, going into a negative shareholders, a negative stated shareholders equity position through the uh, use of additional debt um, to repurchase more shares at a time when, when the, both companies believe their stock's very cheap and uh, they appear to to have the type of long-term cash flow that would at least allow that. Would you comment on the at least accounting treatment and the stated shareholders equity and if you think that should be a real concern for management in those areas. What was the first company besides U.S. Tobacco? T uh, Tam Brands. Tam Brands? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think there's anything magic about whether shareholder equity is positive or negative. Uh, the uh, Coca-Cola has a shareholder equity of $5 billion. Uh, it has a market value of uh, $75 billion or so. Now, they're not going to do it, and I'm not going to recommend it, but if they were to spend $10 billion buying in their stock, they would have a negative shareholder's equity of $5 billion. Uh, they would, their credit would be sound. I mean, if somebody else were to buy the company for $75 billion, they'd, they'd have $5 billion of tangible assets and $70 billion of intangible assets. And uh, there is nothing magic about a company having a positive shareholders' equity, and and uh, it isn't done very often, and I can't even think of a case where it's been done, uh, but I, it may have been. But I see, I see no, I see nothing wrong with a company having a negative shareholders' equity, although it may be prohibited by the state in which they're incorporated in terms of repurchasing shares at a time that would produce that. I, you have to look at the state law on that. But any time a company in an LBO or something is bought out at some very large number over book value, in effect, they're creating a, a, a negative, uh, if they borrow enough money on it, they're creating a negative shareholder's equity in terms of the previous shareholder's equity. It's just a fiction as to the numbers between the two, uh, two organizations. Now, you should buy in your stock 
when you don't have a use for the money, and that can that could be management specific. I mean, some managements might have a use for the money if they if if their if their field of capital allocation were large enough, whereas another management that was more specialized in their own business might not. But once a company is attended to the things that are required or advantageous for the present business, um, we think re reacquisition of stock is a very logical thing to consider as long as you don't think you're paying more than the intrinsic value of the business in doing it. And obviously, the bigger the discount from intrinsic value, the more compelling that particular use of, of, of money is. Charlie? I've got nothing to add. Uh, generally speaking, maybe Coca-Cola can have a negative equity, but I don't think it would be a good idea for General Motors. Uh, I think there's something to be said for a positive shareholder's equity. Zone 3. Uh, Edward Barr, Lexington, Kentucky. I had a twofold question. Number one, you mentioned American Express earlier, and I was curious as to whether the fact that credit card usage is only 10% of all transactions and that may continue to grow for some time going forward was a factor in your decision. And to the other part of the question pertains to the durability and permanence of the banking franchise with regard to alternative delivery channels that may appear over the next few years, including the possibility of the Microsoft Intuit merger? Well, the, the specific number you mentioned about credit card usage and so on, that's not a big factor with us. We think, we think credit cards are both here to stay and likely to grow to some extent, although at some point you start reaching limits, at least in terms of outstandings that people are, that make, make any sense. But, the credit, credit card field is a very big field. The question is, is who's got the edge in it? Because uh, everybody is going to want to be in it, and they already are. And, and, uh, and, and there are a lot of different ways you can play the game if you're in the credit card business. And you better have some way of playing one part of the game, preferably a large part, but you better have some way of playing one part of the game better than others, or natural capitalistic forces are going to grind you down. I mean, it, 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 uh, it's a business that people are willing to change their minds about what they do in. I mean, if, they, if, if you offer somebody a credit card that gives them uh, some advantages that don't exist on their earlier card, people are quite willing to shift cards. So you need some kind of an edge uh, in some particular uh, segment of the market. Uh, so the the growth aspects overall of the market were not a big uh, are not a big factor with us. It's, it's it's really a question of figuring out who's going to win what game and who's going to lose what game. And what was the second question again on that? Uh, the second question pertained to the uh, permanence and durability of the banking franchise. Oh yeah, sure. And uh, whether uh, alternative delivery channels over the next few years may erode the durability of that, including the Microsoft Intuit merger? Well, that's a good question. You're certainly seeing the value of bank branches diminish significantly. It used to be a point of enormous pride with managements in how many man branches they had, and, and it was, uh, you know, often political influence and everything else was called into uh, to obtaining branch uh, uh, permits. And 
the world will change in banking probably in some very major ways over a 20 or 30 year period. Exactly what players will benefit and which ones will be hurt, you know, is, is a very tough question. But uh, I would I would expect I would not I don't think I'll ex I'd expect really significant change in banking over the next five years, but I'd certainly expect it over the next the next 20 years. And uh, uh, there are a lot of people that have their eye on that market, including uh, uh, Microsoft, as you mentioned. Uh, it may be to their advantage to hook up with the present players. I mean, I know it's a, certainly something that gets explored, but they may figure out a way to go around the present players too. Uh, and that's one investment consideration. Charlie? Yeah, the interesting player that went around the rest was Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch went heavily into banking with its uh, cash management accounts. and. Uh, I don't think it's the only innovation that'll come along. What's the name of that book? That yeah, I've forgotten. That's a marvelous yeah, book. There's a, there's a great Maybe book. Molly remembers. Uh, what was that book you gave me? It was the history of the credit card. Was it Joan O'Sara's? Yeah, Joan O'Sara was the author. I don't remember the title. But uh, it came out about six months to a year ago. Uh, it's a terrific history of the credit card business. And you, you, If you read that, you will get some idea of the amount of change that can occur in something like, uh, you know, the movement of money. And my guess is that if there's another edition of it in 20 years, there, there'll be plenty more to write about. So, By the way, that is a fabulous book. Uh, uh, most of the people who are here will not be able to put it down. I mean, for a book about an economic development, it, it captures the human background in a very interesting way. Zone four, that seems far over there for zone three. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was uh, Adam Engel from Boulder, Colorado. I was wondering if you could comment on uh, the moat you see around the castles of uh, SunTrust and PNC. Mm. Well, I don't think I should comment on anything on specific holdings like that. But uh, so I would, I would, uh, I would say you would look at those in a general way very much as you look at banking operations first and then you try and figure out what are the specific strengths or weaknesses of both organizations. But uh, there again, I don't want to spoil the fun for you. Charlie? Nothing to add. Zone five. Uh, my name is Bob McClure. I'm from the States, but I, I live in Singapore. About a week ago in the Asian Wall Street Journal, a remark was attributed to Mr. Munger, uh, specifically that owning Solomon Brothers was like owning a casino with a restaurant in the front. The uh, casino uh, alluding to the proprietary trading and the, the restaurant to the uh, so-called client-driven business. Uh, if, if that attribution is correct uh, or accurate, can you uh, well, I don't elaborate think on why you view the business in that way? I don't think it's entirely correct, but I have a pithy way of speaking on occasion. And uh, I frequently speak in a way that works with an in-group, but wouldn't necessarily work everywhere else. And every once in a while, when you take one of those wise-ass comments <laughs> out of context, why, I very much wish that it hadn't occurred. This was such a case. 
It won't stop him in the future, though. <laughs> or me. Zone six. Oh. Are we in five? Which one are we in? Kelly or? Mr. Buffett, uh, I'm Randall Bellows from Chicago. And the two questions I have, since you're answering questions so far afield, are if you were to look at the balance sheet of the United States of America, is the national debt as, as frightening as that it appears to be? And secondly, in terms of re redeployment of capital, if Coca-Cola is such a, uh, uh, a wonderful investment, has returned so much, why not redeploy some capital in uh, purchasing additional shares of Coca-Cola? And finally, thank you for uh, letting Jane do that portrait of you. And if it's good, we'll do Mr. Munger next. Thank you. First question about the U.S. balance sheet. It, uh, the net national debt is about it would be about 60-odd um, percent of GDP. Um, Without counting unfunded pensions. Yeah, but that's, but also with a, a claim on the income, in effect, of, 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 of future citizens, which also was an asset, too, that you could set up. The, uh, but that figure... I think at the end of World War II may have been, uh, I know it was around at least 125%, may have been 150% or so of GDP. Uh, so we have sustained, now inter the interest rate on that debt was much lower. The, a lot of it was at 2.9% because that's what savings bonds paid. But that level of debt, uh, which I don't advocate in relation to GDP, turned out to be quite sustainable. And as a matter of fact, it drifted down uh, year after year uh, for a long time until the early 80s when it started rising again. And now it's, it's, uh, it's actually uh, fallen a little bit in the last few years, the ratio of debt to GDP. There are a lot of measurements of, of uh, how much debt is too much and all of that. But probably, I, I think that if I had to look at one single statistic, I would look at, at that ratio, of, 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 just like I would look at a ratio of debt to income for an individual. Then you'd get into the question of the stability of the income and to whom it is owed. Uh, but I, I do not think that the, uh, that the level of debt relative to the economy is, is uh, of anything that's uh, of a frightening nature. I like the idea of it trending downward a little bit over time rather than trending upward. And if it keeps trending upward, it can get awkward, although it's, I think in Italy it's close to 150% now. And you start getting to 150% and talk 8% interest rates, and you're talking 12% of GDP essentially going to interest. Uh, and, the, uh, if you were to put a balance sheet of the country together, it's kind of interesting because you would have this $4 billion uh, of net debt on the liability side, and you'd also have a lot of pension obligations, as Charlie mentions, on the liability side. But you've got a lot of assets, too. You've got 
you've got a 35% interest, profits interest, in all the American corporations. I mean, the, 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 the government, if it has a 35% tax rate, uh, really owns 35% of the stock of American business. They own, they own a significant part of Berkshire Hathaway. We write them a check every year. We don't write you a check every year, uh, but we write them a check. We plow your earnings back to create more value for their stock, with the, in other words, the taxes they You're get. You're trying to cheer these people <laughs> up. <laughs> but what would, you, what would you pay to have the right today to receive all the future corporate tax payments made by all the companies in the United States, the discounted value of it? You'd pay a very big number. What would you pay to have a right to take a, a percentage of the income of every individual that makes more than X in the United States, and also the right to change your percentage as you went along. That's a very big number, too. So you've got a, you've got a very big asset there, uh, that, and you've got some very big liabilities, too. But uh, the country is very solvent, and, uh, and I would not like to see debt rise at any rapid rate. I wouldn't like to see it rise at all, but I wouldn't like to see it particularly at rise at a rapid rate because that sets a lot of things in motion if it's rising as a percentage of GDP. But if you tell me that 20 years from now the national debt will be $10 trillion, but that it'll be the same percentage of GDP, does that alarm me? Not in the least. I mean, it, uh, so I expect it to increase, and I. I think there's some arguments why, even why it may be advisable to have it increase, but I don't think it's a good idea to have it take up more and more of your income because that sets a lot of other things in motion. So I welcome what's happened in the last couple of years, which is to see it decrease modestly from uh, from the trend that existed the previous 10 or 12 years. Charlie? Well, generally, I think that you're right. that. It isn't all bad, and to the extent that it is bad, uh, a great nation with a capitalistic economy will stand uh, quite a bit of abuse from the political side. It's a damn good thing, too, because uh, I don't think we should be terribly discouraged. If, if there's anything that's really going to do the country in, it'll be what I call a Serpico effect, where you start rewarding what you don't want more of, and it then just grows and grows and grows. Yeah, but I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad fiscal result. It's just a bad result. Berkshire owes seven or eight hundred million or whatever it is now in debt, and then we have another three billion sum afloat. But you know, those numbers would have sounded very big to me twenty-five years ago. And, and yet, you know, we're we're one of the most conservatively financed operations you'll find. Ten years from now, we may owe more money, and it may be a smaller percentage still. I mean, it. it you can't talk about debt levels without relating it to the ability to pay debt. And uh, this country is probably in better financial shape now than it was in 1947. Zone 1? Was, was there a second question that I didn't answer on that? Or not? Oh, in terms of repurchasing shares, right. No, you said, why don't we buy more? Well, we think about it. But, we uh, did, not Yeah, we ago. did. We, we bought more last year, and uh, it's not a bad measuring stick against buying other things. But, um, there's, um, we, I would not rule out Berkshire buying more. I don't, I don't have any plans to do it right now, but, uh, but I, I wouldn't rule that out at all because it's, if I'm going to look at another business, I will, I will say, you know, why would I rather have this than more Coca-Cola? 
Well, there he's saying something that is very useful to practically any investor when he said, use this as a measuring stick in terms of buying other things. For an ordinary individual, the best thing you have easily available is your measuring stick. If it isn't, if the new thing isn't better than what you already know is to, as available that hasn't met your threshold, then that screens out, you know, 99% of what you see. And it's an enormous thought conserver. And uh, it is not taught in the business schools, by and large. No, and that's why we think it's slightly nuts when big institutions decide, because everybody else is doing it, to put 4% of their money in international equities or 3% in emerging growth countries, some damn thing like that. I mean, it, it, that, the only reason to put the money in there is that they measure it against what they're already doing. And if they measure it against what they're already doing and they think it's a screamingly good idea to leave 97% in the other place and put 3% in, you know, I mean, that, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But it, it's, it's, uh, it's what committees are talked to about and what keeps investment managers going to conferences and everything. So they're, they're, they're deliberately using a technique that takes away the best mental tool they have. Uh, you can say this is nuts, and you're right. And uh, I think Nietzsche said it pretty well when he said he laughed at the man who thought he could walk better because he had a lame leg. I mean, they literally are, are, are blinding themselves. And then they're teaching our children how to do this in our own business schools. Very interesting, don't you think? Mm. And what all Warren says is, Deciding whether to do something, just compare the best opportunity you have. If that one is better and you're not taking it, why would you do this? Just because somebody tells you you need 2% in international equities. Zone one. Hi, my name is uh, Mark Wheeler. I'm from Portland, Oregon. And I have a few eggs in your basket. Uh, my grandmother always said, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I have a question. I think you answered this a couple of years ago in one of your reports about Little Abner's investment approach. Um, suppose I had $100,000 and I decide to buy four or five more of your shares, and that was sort of a buy and hold thing for four or five years. And also, I have a money manager. I've already got one, and uh, he he does pretty well, 10, 15%, but he churns the assets all the time. You know, every, every time I turn around, all this mailbox full of paperwork. I guess my question is, how, how can I arrive at which, which is a better deal for me? In other words, to buy Berkshire, which I like, and obviously I'm here, so I'm interested in it, or hang on to my money manager who just seems to be churning the hell out of the account. Well, it's better than have a broker churning the hell out of the account. <laughs> he's got a little less incentive if he's, if he's getting a management fee. But um, I can't answer your question as to which decision you should make in that case. But I, uh, I would say that if you're, you're right in the sense that if you buy Berkshire, you should only think about buying it for a very long period of time. I mean, we, we have no idea what Berkshire is going to do, either intrinsically or in the market in the next year and you know we don't we care about the intrinsic part of it we don't care about the market aspect we do care about building in intrinsic value and uh, you know in the end we don't think when we own Berkshire we don't think of all our eggs being in one basket I mean because we have got a lot of good businesses but 
but in, if you're talking about some, you know, lightning from someplace, huge, the huge liability suit or something like that hitting one corporate entity, uh, we're one corporate entity. But if you think about it in terms of the business risk implicit in in, a, in an entity, we 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 have a lot of different good businesses. I, in fact, we probably have as as decent a collection of good businesses as 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 as, uh, as any company I can I can think of. Uh, but your money manager will also undoubtedly have the advantage of working with probably with smaller sums too, and that gives him a bigger universe of of, of opportunity. We're not set up tax-wise perfectly as compared to an individual working with their own capital. We're set up tax-wise fine for somebody who's going to sort of own it forever, but we're not, we're not set up tax-wise uh, as well for somebody who's going to own it a year or something of the sort. Uh, Charlie, you have any? Nothing to add. Mm -hmm. Zone uh, what? Oh, back there? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's on. Okay. It is. I'm Jeff Johnson. I'm grateful to be here from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I have two questions. First, I was hoping you could explain or offer an opinion as to why investors in property casualty insurance companies are willing to accept traditionally below average type of returns. The second question relates to an answer you gave me yesterday, uh, that being that, that intuition or gut feeling has nothing to do in your in making investment decisions. I was wondering if there is anything subjective in yours and Mr. Munger's assessment of whether or not you like someone and how it is that you determine whether or not you like the, uh, the lord of the castle. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know, Charlie, do you want to answer that second part? <laughs> well, we spoke about agency costs. Uh, and the, there are two different kinds of agency costs. One, the guy favors himself at the expense of the shareholders, and the other is he's, he does foolish things, or he's not trying to favor himself, he just is foolish by nature. Either way, it's very costly to you as the shareholder, uh, so you're, you have to judge those two aspects of, of human character, and, and they're, they're terribly important. And uh, on the other hand, there are some good businesses so good that they'll easily stand a lot of folly in the managerial suite. And uh, I, I, much as we like perfect people, I don't think we've always invested with them. Mm. But generally, we like we like we like people who are candid. If, if, we can usually tell when somebody's dancing around something, or whether when the reports are as, essentially a little dishonest or biased or something. And it, it, it's just a lot easier to operate with with people that uh, that are candid and. Uh, we like people that are smart, you know. That then I don't I don't mean geniuses, but that and we like people who are focused uh, uh, on the business. Uh, um, it's not it's not real complicated, but uh, uh, we generally, you know, there may be a whole bunch of people in the middle that we don't really have any feeling on one way or the other, and then we see some that we know we don't want to be associated with, and some that we know we very much enjoy being associated with. Averaged out, we've been very fortunate. Very lucky. And uh, your other question, you said, why is it that these investors accept below average results? Well, in the nature of things, approximately half the investors are going to get below average results. Mm -hmm. 
they didn't exactly accept it in advance. It's just the way it turned out. And the money tends to be fairly captive once it's in a company. I mean, it takes a lot. If you have a business that gets subnormal returns over time, it, 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 there's, a, there's a big threshold in terms of either a takeover or proxy fight or something like that to unleash the capital. So money that's tied up in an unprofitable business or, or, or a, a, a sub-profitable business is likely to stay tied up for a good period of time. Eventually, something will probably correct it. But, but, but capitalism does not operate so efficiently as to to move capital around uh, promptly uh, when it's misallocated. Uh, we're, we are in a better position to do that when Berkshire owns a company. Uh, and obviously, we're in no position to do it because it involves something we don't want to do if we own it uh, through some other in some other enterprise. We just sell to somebody else who takes another chair, takes our chair at the table, in effect. Zone three. Hi, Philip King from San Francisco. I've got another question about valuation, um, more specifically the relation of PEs to interest rates. I understand that uh, you don't want to lay down a rigid formula for, um, for valuation, but I also know that you don't want people to think that a multiple of 20 times earnings is cheap or a multiple of five times earnings is expensive. Uh, so uh, Benjamin Graham, he devised a central value theory that valued the average stock at an earnings yield that's about a third above bond yields. In other words, uh, that would work out to maybe 11 times earnings currently. Um, and I know that you've compared uh, the average business to a 13% bond that's worth roughly book at 13% interest rates and worth perhaps roughly twice book at 6% interest rates. So um, given current interest rates of 7 to 8% uh, as they are now, uh, that would tend to imply that stocks are worth perhaps 12 to 13 times earnings. And yet the acquisitions that I've seen in the private market have gone out at more like 17 to 20 times earnings. Uh, and I'd like to know what do you think is the rough range of multiples that makes sense? Yeah, well, it isn't a multiple of today's earnings that is primarily determinative of things. We, we bought our Coca-Cola, for example, in 1988 and 89 on this stock at a price of uh, $11 a share, which as low as nine, as high as 13, but it averaged about $11. And it'll earn, we'll say, most estimates are between 230 and 240 this year. So that's under five times this year's earnings, but it was a pretty good size multiple back when we bought it. It's, it's the future that counts. It's like what I wrote there, what Wayne Gretzky says, to go to where the puck is going to be, not where it is. So. The current multiple interacts with the reinvestment of capital and the rate at which that capital is invested to determine the attractiveness of something now. And uh, uh, we, are, we are affected in that valuation process uh, to a considerable degree by interest rates, but not by whether they're 7.3 or 7.0 or 7.5. But I mean, I, we will be thinking much differently if their long-term rates are 11 percent or 5 percent. And uh, uh, but we don't have any magic multiples in mind. We, we're, we're thinking we want to be in the business that 10 years from now is earning a whole lot more money than it is now, and that we will still feel good about the prospects of the business at that time. 
That's the kind of business we're trying to buy all of, and that's the kind of business that we try and buy part of. And then sometimes we buy others, too. <laughs> Charlie? We don't do any of that rigid formulaic stuff. There's a general framework that you can call a formula in our mind, but we also don't kid ourselves that we know so much about the specifics that we would actually make a calculation in terms of a, the equation. When we bought Coke in 88 and 89, we, we had this idea about what we thought the business would do over time, but we never reduced it to making a calculation. Maybe we should, but it, I mean, it just, it just uh, we don't think there's that kind of precision. Do we? Th we think it's the right way to think in a general way, and we think if you try to, if you think that you can do it to pinpoint it, you're kidding yourself. And therefore, we think that when we make a decision, there ought to be such a margin of safety that it ought to be so attractive that you don't have to carry it out to three decimal places. We'll take a couple more, and then we'll have to. To leave. We've got a director's meeting. We have one director's meeting a year, and we don't want to disappoint them. Zone four. Uh, yes, I'm Roy Christian from Aptos, California. I wanted to ask one question about U.S. Air, which has not been questioned much at this meeting. Uh, when you were on television uh, talking about uh, the losses there, it was funny how so many of my friends or maybe acquaintances came forward to tell me this, this piece of startling news. And, uh, you know, I tried to stand up for you a little bit, uh, and at least... It was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> you, should, you should have just taken a dive. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I, I wanted to point out to no, them <laughs> that you did uh, have dividends over a period of about right. uh, five or six years, and that that money uh, was reinvested maybe at a better return than USA, or so that it wasn't quite the disaster that... Uh, it was pictured on television when you spoke about it, or the impression that all my friends, or I shouldn't call them acquaintances, uh, mm. pointed out to me. Just a comment, I guess, is what I'm asking for. Yeah, well, you're right. It could have been worse, but it was, uh, it was a mistake. But we, uh, we received uh, uh, five years, I guess, yeah, it'd be five years of dividends at, at, a, at, a, at a good rate while we got it. But, but it's like somebody says it isn't the return on principle that you care about. It's the return of principle. And uh, we, uh, but we're better off, we're a lot better off, obviously, than if we bought the common, and we're even better off than if we bought some other stocks, but it was, it was still a big mistake on my part. And, but keep standing up for me. I need all the help I can get on this one. <laughs> Zone five. Hi, I'm uh, Chris Stavrou from New York. Uh, uh, Charlie, in addition to the book that you mentioned on credit cards, are there any other books you have been reading that you'd recommend to us? And Warren, are there any books that you have been reading that you'd, <laughs> you'd recommend? I know you're a fan of uh, Bertrand Russell. Any favorite one or two of his books? It's been, been a long time since I've read those. Though. I mean, I, I read a lot of Russell, but I did that a lot. He hasn't written much in the last 10 or 15 years. <laughs> Charlie? There's a textbook which is called, uh, I think, Judgment in Managerial Decision-Making. And uh, it's used in some of the business schools, and it's actually quite a good book. It's not sprightly, uh, it's not written in a sprightly way that makes it fun to read, but there's a lot of wisdom in it. It's something like Braberman, or, but it's Judgment in Managerial Decision-Making. 
Since taking up computer bridge, which is 10 hours a week, it's really screwed up my reading. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, though. Zone 6, uh, take a couple more, and then we'll. Yes, I'm Dick Layton from Rockford, Illinois. Uh, this is the first annual meeting that I've attended, and it's been very beneficial to me. I've been extremely impressed with the number of people here, but even more so with the number of young people who have come. And uh, I would like very much to be able to bring my grandchildren as shareholders, but I find it difficult to get shares into their hands with the current <laughs> per unit. That's, a, that's the nicest introduction to the stock split question we've had. <laughs> it really I, is, too. I, I thought you would appreciate that. <laughs> um, Obviously, you understand the question. I understand the position you've taken over the years and the fact that it adds no value to make the, uh, the split. In this case, however, it could be a tax savings to many of us who would like to get stock shares into the hands of other family members. Um, should I just uh, uh, go to work on my congressman to change the tax code, or would you consider a change? Well, that, that's a very valid question, and there, there's certainly a couple of areas, one of which you've just mentioned, and I had someone else mention to me that they had their Berkshire and an IRA account, and now they were getting into the mandatory payout arrangement, and they, and it, 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 it didn't work well in terms of, of uh, using the Berkshire, although I think they could sell it and then pay out a percentage of it. But there are certain aspects, primarily of gifting, uh, where it is anywhere from awkward to disadvantage, uh, disadvantageous to have uh, the price per share on a stock that exists with Berkshire. And, uh, you know, we're aware of it. We've thought about it. And, and we've got our own personal situations even sometimes that are, are involved in that. I've got one in the family, that, 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 that which we've worked, figured out ways around. Um, the disadvantage, of course, is that is, uh, that uh, you saw a little even earlier this year of what a, a book can do. Or uh, we we want to attract shareholders who are as investment oriented as we can possibly obtain with as long term horizons. And to some extent, the publicity about me is negative in that respect because I know that if we had something that that it was a lot easier for anybody with $500 to buy that we would get an awful lot of people buying it who didn't have the faintest idea what they were doing but but heard the name bandied around in some way. And secondly, to the extent that ever created a market that was even that was stronger, you then would have people buying it simply because it was going up. We got a little bit of that going on this year. There are a lot of people that are attracted to stocks that are going upward. It doesn't attract us, but it attracts the rest of the world to some degree. So we. We are almost certain that we would get. We, just, we don't know the we don't know the degree to which it would happen. We are almost certain we would get a shareholder base that would not have the level of sophistication and the and the synchronization of objectives with us that we have now. That that that, that is almost a cinch. And what we really don't need in Berkshire stock is more demand. I mean that that is not. We don't care to have it sell higher except as intrinsic value grows. Ideally, we would have the stock price exactly parallel the change in intrinsic value over time because then everybody would be treated fairly among our shareholders. They would all gain 
just or lose as, as the company gained or, or lost over their ownership period. And anything that artificially stimulated the price in one period simply means that some other period shareholders are going to dis be disappointed. I mean, it, we, we don't want the stock to sell at twice intrinsic value or 50% above intrinsic value. We want the intrinsic value to grow a lot. But uh, uh, And I don't think there's any question but that we would get a worse result in that aspect if we introduce splits in because then people would think about other possibilities that that, that, that might give the, the stock a temporary uh, boost. We they had a t tabulation in Business Week a couple of months ago on turnover on the exchange. We were at 3%, and I don't think anybody was uh, that I saw on the list was under double digits and bigger numbers. Well, those are people that are simply, you know, their shareholders leaving frequently and, and new shareholders coming in with shorter-term anticipations. We have wanted this to be as much like a private partnership as we can have with everybody having the ability to buy it. Uh, at, we don't think the minimum investment is 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 too high to have in this investment world. I mean, there are all kinds of investment opportunities that are limited to twenty-five thousand or fifty thousand and that sort of thing. But the problem of making change, you know, in 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 terms of gifts, or, you know, that that I wish I had a better answer for because I think that is a that that well, is. I might, my grandchildren pay me the difference between twenty thousand dollars and the current price, and. Uh, I think that's a very reasonable way for them to behave, particularly when they are sometimes are only six weeks old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you need you need a spouse's consent to make it uh, to work with with twenty, obviously. But it, there, there, most of the things can be solved. But 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 I'll admit it isn't as easy to solve as if we just had a stock denominated in a lower dollars per share. Uh, I do think that once you get a shareholder base. That is, has got, that has different objectives or expectations or anything. You can't get rid of it. I mean, you can you can keep a you can keep a shareholder base like Berkshire, but you can't reconstruct it if you if you if you destroy it in some way. And and it's important to us who we're in with. I mean, it it, it enables us to to. I think it I think it helps us in our operation. I think it even may. In some cases, it may even help us in acquisitions in terms of who we. Are. It may, it, for all I know, it may hurt us someplace too that I don't know about. But I, I don't think so because I think we can design, particularly with a preferred stock, we can design something to satisfy uh, somebody who might have in mind a different denomination of security. Look around you. Are we really likely to do a lot better? It's yeah. a good bunch. Yeah. That may be a good question to to end on, and I appreciate it. I appreciate all of you coming, and we'll see you next year. Thank you.